0: we're told that the Pharisees had these, these uh, washings that it says, uh, in Mark 7 says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Both times in those verses, the word wash is the word baptizo, baptize. It says, the Pharisees baptized or washed even their dining couches, which were five to six foot long wooden benches covered in cloth and cushions. Now, surely they didn't immerse them. Water was scarce. That would have been considered a waste. It's practically impossible. And so once we understand and kind of do the hard work that the word baptism, by its very meaning, doesn't mean immerse, but it means to wash or to cleanse, then we can begin to to answer the question why have, have, uh, in our tradition as Presbyterians, but really why throughout history has the common practice been to baptize by pouring or sprinkling? There's a very good reason for it, and it's not rooted in tradition, it's rooted in Scripture. In Ezekiel 36, um, Ezekiel prophesied the outpouring of the Spirit, God's work of regeneration, He was prophesying being cleansed from sin, and the Lord said this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And throughout the Old Testament, among the Hebrew people and carrying into the New Testament, the practice of cleansing was many times to take a branch of hyssop and to sprinkle water or blood if it was a ceremonial thing, but to to go about cleansing that way, if you, if you look at Exodus 24, um, we're told that Moses, as a confirmation of God's covenant, sprinkled blood upon the altar, and then he sprinkled blood upon the people. And the apostle Peter picked up that event in Exodus 24, in 1 Peter 1-2, and he connected the two. And in 1 Peter 1, 2, we read that it was for obedience to Jesus Christ that we have been sprinkled with his blood. And the early church was predominantly Jewish, and that they would have had no problem seeing the connection between the old covenant and the new covenant, and the act of sprinkling would have been for them easily understandable. Going back all the way to Exodus, they were sprinkled ceremonially clean, now, of course, this, this doesn't mean immersion's bad, because I would say the vast majority of, his, of us in here were. Um, immersion is not bad. It's not unacceptable. Of course, we believe immersion is acceptable. And I want you to know, if you've been dunked, you're good. You're really, you're really good. But what it means is that pouring or sprinkling is most in keeping with the covenantal approach that we see throughout the whole of Scripture. Not in a particular proof text that we cherry pick, but throughout the whole of Scripture, God's people cleansing, washing, baptism was primarily done uh, by sprinkling. And so, that's the how question. I don't, I don't want to spend much time there. In fact, we're going to move on from that. How is not really all that important. Um, uh, disagreeing with our Baptist friends. When it comes to baptism, though, I believe the real heart of the matter is, is is a matter of the heart and that brings us to the second question that i think is really the more important question It's what what is baptism what does baptism signify what makes baptism so important do you remember um the first time that you watched star wars episode five which is the empire strikes back i think it came out in 1980 i believe near the end darth vader drops a bombshell. He's he's fighting with Luke, and he says, Luke, I am your father. Mind blown, right? Where in the world did that come from? We had to wait 25 years until episode three came out to understand how Anakin became Darth Vader. Here's the point. For 25 years, unless you read the books, you're like, where did that come from? We didn't know his origin story. All of a sudden, the bomb is dropped, but we don't know how we got here. In a similar way, if you just look at passages in the New Testament which address baptism, but don't discover their origin story in the Old Testament, it won't make much sense. That baptism doesn't begin in the New Testament. It is rooted covenantally in the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, God, we we read a couple chapters later today, Jason did in Genesis 17, where the covenant is established, it's ratified, but in Genesis 15, God entered into a covenant relationship with Abram, and he made a promise to Abram, he said, I'm going to um, make a great nation of your descendants, uh, so numerous that it'll be more than the stars of the heaven or the sands of the sea, I'm going to make of your people a great nation, a people of faith. I will be your God and you will be my people. And then later in Genesis 17, God gave Abram a sign of that covenant promise, and the sign was circumcision. And Abram was commanded to circumcise himself, to circumcise his promised son, Isaac, to circumcise his illegitimate son, Ishmael, to circumcise um, all of the males that were born into the family after that, and even the males that were brought into the family, either by uh, servants or slaves. And so God makes a covenant promise to Abram, and then he gives a sign of that promise two chapters later, and it's the sign of circumcision. And at a very basic level, what is circumcision? Well, it's the, it's the cutting away of unclean flesh that requires bloodshed, through the shedding of blood. And even even in the first few uh, chapters of of God's Word, we're already seeing um, pictures of Christ. It's the cutting away of uncleanness, unclean flesh, by bloodshed. But the problem is, and this is where we discover in the New Testament, circumcision didn't actually make anyone clean. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 2 that true circumcision is a matter of the heart. In other words, what what we really need and what was needed all along is a heart circumcision where our uncleanliness is excised, it's removed by someone's shed blood. Now, maybe you're wondering, what does all of that have to do with Baptism. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the old covenant promise. He fulfilled the requirements of the covenant, and he inaugurated a new covenant. And in the new covenant, baptism replaces circumcision as the covenant sign. I say it's as simple as that, but it took me three years to figure that out. In the new covenant, Baptism replaces circumcision as the covenant sign. And the Apostle Paul makes this connection in Colossians 2, which I do believe I put in the bulletin. In him, Jesus, in Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're talking about a spiritual sort of circumcision. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, what is that, Paul? What What is this removal, this cleanse? This cleansing? having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. I know some of you are already reverting back to the mode issue. We'll see that that points us to immersion. It it doesn't. It's talking about death and life. And so baptism, what is it? It's a washing. Baptism is a washing. Baptism now signifies in the new covenant what circumcision signified in the old covenant. Baptism is a sign of God's covenant that he made long ago, but it's a better sign. Baptism is better than circumcision because circumcision was limited to Jewish males. But Paul tells us in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ. And if in Christ— then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is, this is essentially Paul saying, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> Unless you understand how we got to this point, it won't make any sense. He's saying that in Christ, we're Abraham's offspring. The promise is not received by circumcision or by baptism. It's received by faith. And that's why our children, every summer, I let them this year in June at Vacation Bible School. That's why a bunch of Gentiles sit there and sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Yeah, right arm, left arm. How can they sing that? Because it's not about birth lineage. It's about faith. That's an incredibly covenantal song. When Kimbo and I were married 20 years ago this coming December, um, we made vows to one another. And we entered into a covenant relationship. And, and like all covenants, uh, covenant is a covenant is a bond that's forged in blood. That's what the word covenant means. It means to cut and, and to shed blood and to, to come together. It's a, we, we entered into a blood pact, essentially, because we committed, in our words, to, to, to be with each other in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, as long as we both shall live. In other words, I put my life on the line, and she put her life on the line, and then after we made those vows, we gave each other a sign, a sign of the covenant. We gave each other a ring, and this ring, which I don't wear all that much anymore. I've replaced it with a little silicone one, but this ring is um, like a glaring neon sign, right? It says, sorry, ladies, I'm taken. It says, it says, I am in a covenant relationship. There is a bond that's been forged, and this is the sign of that covenant. Now, if I take this ring off, I'm still in that relationship. If my sons put it on, that doesn't make them married, right? It's a sign, it's a token, but it speaks volumes, Similarly, circumcision as a sign of the covenant did not guarantee that the recipient was a true follower of Yahweh. Even if you go back and read from Genesis 10 through 17, even Ishmael, the illegitimate son, conceived with Hagar, his wife's, uh, Abraham's wife's servant, the son who's put out, even he receives the sign of the covenant and receives blessing. There there were countless men in the Old Testament who, who walked with the Jewish people who were circumcised on the eighth day who did not believe in the God of Israel, who walked away and turned to idolatry. So circumcision did not guarantee that the recipient of that circumcision was a true follower of God, nor does baptism guarantee that the recipient of baptism will follow Jesus by faith or has followed Jesus by faith. I think Ethan may be up in the video room this morning. But I I think if I got my count right, we were talking in the office. I think he told me he was baptized four times, five maybe. I know for me it was three. Baptism doesn't guarantee salvation. It also means that baptism is not required for salvation because we know that there are many who have faith in Jesus and are not baptized. Of course, we think of the thief on the cross. So baptism is a sign of God's covenant. That's the what. What is it? It is a sign of God's covenant. It is the sign of being washed. It is a picture of what Christ has done in removing our uncleanliness by his shed blood. It's the replacement of circumcision, and it's far better because it's not limited just to males, and because Christ shed his blood, there no longer has to be any bloodshed In the covenant that brings us to a third question who who should be baptized well once once we understand that baptism is linked with circumcision intimately linked with circumcision the continuation of that covenant practice then we have to say well baptism is for those who believe in jesus as well as their children you know jason asked last week Do we practice believer's baptism or infant baptism? Yes. Yes. We take all comers because we believe that baptism is not a sign of our faith in Jesus, but it's a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. In the book of Acts, uh, there are many baptisms that we see that are believer's baptisms. Where the person, presumably a a young adult or an adult, puts their faith in Jesus, and they are given the sign of the covenant. When the 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost, they were new converts. They were baptized into the covenant. When Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to faith, He baptized him as a new convert into the covenant. And with all of those baptisms, it was a sign of the gospel to them, not a sign of their response to the gospel. Friends, let me say that again. I believe that's the key. Baptism is a sign of the gospel that God gives to us. It is not a sign of our response to the gospel that we choose for ourselves. And so many of the baptisms that we see, particularly early on in Acts, our believers' baptisms, but what about the baptism of infants and children? Well, the, the practice of, of baptizing infants, the practice of baptizing children, like I baptized last week, not just dedicated, not just dedicate with water—it's a baptism. It's not a wet dedication. What I did last week with little Gentry Anna. Um, the practice of baptizing infants and children into the church—I want you to understand—is not a new invention. It's not an invention of the medieval Catholic Church. It's not even an invention of the Reformation. It's a biblical practice that we we see beginning in the book of Acts and continuing over the last 2,000 years. In fact, truth be told, withholding baptism from children is the new invention. That's only happened in the last 500 years. Withholding baptism from children is the new practice. From the early 2nd century, and so we I'm going to make a case for it in just a moment biblically, but we see it historically. From the early 2nd century, just within a few decades after the closing of the canon, all the way through the middle of the 5th century, the biggest names of the church fathers all affirmed and wrote on the practice of infant baptism. Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Origen, Polycarp, Cyprium, Chrysostom, Augustine. Consider this. You want to talk about connection, lineage. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, Polycarp a disciple of the Apostle John. And Irenaeus wrote, Jesus came to save through himself and to set apart infants and children, sanctifying them, setting them apart. Hippolytus wrote this, baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. otherwise, let their parents or relatives speak for them. But we have to ask not what these guys did a hundred years later, but is it biblical? Is there, is there actually support for the practice of baptizing infants and children in Scripture in Acts two, when Peter was preaching um, that sermon? He proclaimed these words, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, for the promise. And the antecedent there is not the forgiveness of sins, it's this covenant promise. For the promise, and he's taking two passages from the Old Testament, combining them and quoting them. And he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now how... How would a predominantly Jewish audience have heard those words? They would have heard them in a covenantal context. Just as Abraham, circumcision was not a sign of his faith. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then God extended the covenant blessing to Abraham's children. This Jewish crowd in Acts 2 would have understood in this covenantal context that Peter was calling on them to repent believe and be baptized. Yes, repent, believe, and be baptized. But he was extending a promised blessing to their children as well. And so we have, we have plenty of examples of believers' baptisms in Acts, but are there examples of household baptisms? And the reason we chose this week to take a break is because over the last three weeks, as we've made our way through Acts 16, we've seen two. Lydia and the Philippian jailer. In Acts 16. And and, and I want to dispel this. The question is not, were there infants in the house? That is not even the question. The question is, were there members of the family that were baptized because of the faith of their parent, regardless of age? With Lydia, we're told that the Lord opened her heart to receive Paul's words. The Lord did a work of regeneration to open her heart to to believe the gospel, and she believed, in verse 15 says of of Acts 16, she was baptized and her household as well. Similarly, a little bit later in the chapter, we're told that um, the Philippian jailer, that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, with Lydia... There's no account of Paul and Silas sharing the gospel with any of the other family, and yet they were baptized. With the jailer, of course, it does say that they spoke the word of the Lord to his family, but it never indicates their response. Now, if you're predisposed to believe that baptism is only for believers, then you'll read those accounts and make the assumption that, of course, he preached the gospel to them, and of course they believed. I hope they did. I hope his family uh, the, the families of Lydia and the Philippian jailer Did hear the gospel And believe But the text doesn't make that assumption In fact it says something very different Look at I don't, Did I include Acts 1634 in the bulletin Alright Take out a Bible and, and turn to Acts 1634 In the pew Bible It will be on page 925 In Acts 16.34, we're told that after um, that night Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praises to God, there is a rumbling, some sort of an earthquake. Um, The the prison doors are open, their shackles are loosened. The jailer, assuming that everyone's escaped, that would be natural, is about to, to kill himself. Paul says, do yourself no harm, for we're all here. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved you and your house. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and they took him or he took them that night and washed their wounds and he was baptized verse 30 uh, verse 33 and 34. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I've told you this several times, actually for months now, building up to this very sermon, that the author of Acts is Dr. Luke. He's a physician. He he had a mastery of language, and his writings, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, are some of the most precise linguistic writings in the New Testament. And I don't want to bore you with a Greek lesson. But the words that he had believed, verse 34, and they rejoiced that he had believed, are actually just a single Greek word, and it's a perfect active participle, nominative masculine singular. Now I can see you glazing over right now. Hang with me. Who was baptized? The jailer and his family. When they rejoiced later that evening over faith, whose faith were they rejoicing over? His. Only the jailer is recorded as having believed, and Luke could have easily written, and they rejoiced that they had believed in God, but he doesn't. He writes that the one who believed was the man. It's a masculine singular, one object, one person who possesses faith, but the entire family are baptized. And I believe those are two examples of what Paul will later write about in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. That children are set apart and made holy because of the faith of a parent. Children or family members, this has been this this way since Genesis. Why would God all of a sudden throw a curveball beginning in the New Testament? He's told us what he's going to do from the third chapter of the Bible. After the, the moment sin enters creation, God tips his hand. He says the the seed of woman uh, will crush the head of the serpent. I'll put enmity between between you and her, between your seed and his seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That's what we call the proto-evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. From Genesis 3, God's been telling us what he's going to do, and he's been doing it. He enters into covenant relationship with his people. He gives them a covenant sign that points to Jesus. He tells them to keep doing that, practice that covenant sign, to circumcise not only those who were brought in, professors, but also those who were born into the family. And he continues that same practice. The only difference is he changes the sign. Where else has God done that? Right here. It's the same thing. That, that um, when, when Passover happens... And they, they kill that innocent, spotless lamb. There are certainly Christ allusions there. That they take the blood and they sprinkle it and they, they, they wipe the top of the post on the door. And it was a remembrance of God's salvation where, where his wrath had passed over those who were covered in blood. And God doesn't throw a curveball. He doesn't change things. He modifies them. In the New Testament, when Jesus came and shed his blood, no longer any bloodshed. Jesus takes this Passover meal on the night that he was betrayed and he says, now this is my body given for you. What we see throughout the Bible. This is one of the, uh, I I, I told Don Donald I wasn't going to take any digs at anyone this morning. Um, but, but I, I, um, I'm happy to, uh, to discuss baptism with you. I'm not, I'm not terribly passionate about it, but I, when I say that, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm happy to discuss it. It's not like the thing that turns my engine. But, um, but I have studied this issue probably more than any other issue, um, th- theological issue. And so I'm happy to tell you where you're wrong. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. It was a joke. Um, but <clears throat> I-, I was talking to a friend just recently, A dear friend, just recently, and he says, Well, you're making you're making a case historically, you're making a case linguistically, I'm just making a case biblically, and I said, No, you're making a case from the New Testament, I'm making a case from the whole Bible, old and new, right? Not just from the New Testament and a few cherry-picked passages, but the whole of Scripture. And what we see throughout the whole of Scripture, it's really simple and straightforward. God makes promises, just like I did to my wife, and he gives a sign of that promise. And once Christ comes, there no longer needs to be bloodshed, and women and non-Jews and everyone by faith is included. When a covenant child is baptized, we pray that they will never remember a day when they did not know of Jesus. That's what I prayed for my own children. They would never recall a day when they didn't know about Jesus and that in God's good timing, that that child will believe what their baptism signifies. But just like with Abraham, it's always a matter of faith. Are there baptized children who never believe? Yeah. Unfortunately, there are. There are are children of the church who are baptized into the visible church who betray their baptism and never believe in the Christ whose whose sacrament they've been washed in. Are there adults who are baptized but at some point walk away from the faith? Maybe they never had true saving faith, yes. Unfortunately, yes. Baptism, just like circumcision, does not guarantee saving faith, whether it was a child or an adult. Baptism pictures what Jesus has done for us and baptism calls us to constantly put our faith in Him. Jason mentioned this last week with those baptisms. Um, the language of our, of our uh, confession is that we are called to improve our baptism. And what that means is that when we see, when we see a person baptized, whether a child or an adult, or, or here in a few weeks when I get to baptize uh, Julia Ossiker, right? Right? Um, when, when that child is baptized, for everyone in here who's a member of the church, I'm talking capital C church, a member of Christ's body who's been baptized, we, we look at that baptism and remember that we are called constantly to put our faith in Him. In the Old Testament, I mentioned it a moment ago, God gave His people two sacraments, right? two, two holy signs and seals that pointed to Christ's salvation, that pointed to His faithfulness One was the sacrament of circumcision. That pictured entrance into the community. And that continues in the sacrament of baptism. The other was Passover. They were called to feast and remember God's faithfulness and salvation. And of course, that that sacrament continues in the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are beautiful pictures of what Jesus has done for us. He's taken our sin. He's shed his blood. He's made us clean. But they are more than signs, right? They are more than signs. They are more than pictures. They are what we call means of grace. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are conduits of grace for all who believe. And so this morning, if your faith is in Jesus, if you've been baptized into the church, then, you, then you're welcome at this table you don't have to be a member of Christ Presbyterian Church, but if you're a member of Christ's body and you've been marked, uh, God has put, given you that sign uh, of covenant, then you're welcome to this table. You may have been immersed like I was. Great. You may have been baptized as a child. Wonderful. Our hope is not in the act alone, but in the one who acted. And and here's, you know, I've talked about some where we differ from our Baptist brothers. Let me talk just for a moment about where we differ from our Catholic brothers, They believe that the sacraments work ex opera operato. I just wanted to throw a Latin phrase out there at you. It just means that out of the doing, it's done. Just because it's done, it works. But we don't believe that. We don't believe that this, this wine becomes Christ's blood, and that Bread becomes his body, and the water that I baptized with last week is not holy water. They're common elements, but by faith, and only by faith, Christ does an uncommon work within us to to give us the grace of Jesus. And so we come to this table believing, not hoping for something mystical or magical to happen, but it is a mystery. It's what the word sacrament means it's a mystery. That we, by faith, believe what Jesus has done. And he gives us more grace for the moment. And so let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, uh, what what an overwhelming task I chose for myself today to try and um, talk about covenant baptism in about 35 or 40 minutes when those of us who've made that journey from one theological position to another uh, undoubtedly, read countless volumes and study the matter for years. But I pray that it was helpful, Lord, that You would take Your word, as I prayed at the, at the beginning, and write it up on our hearts. That Lord, for uh, that we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't want to believe a particular view of baptism just so we can have our theological eyes dotted and our doctrinal T's crossed. that, that is not why we want to understand baptism, but we want to understand what Jesus has done and Your faithfulness to us that when we see this sign and consider our own, that we are, we are humbled and drawn more and more unto Jesus. Lord, we, we cherish this sacrament because you've given it to us. And in giving it to us, you've displayed so clearly the gospel and our need for it. And so now in this moment, as in our baptism we were brought into a family, now we gather around the table with family. Mm. And I pray that we would delight and we would feed and feast and look back on what Christ has done and look forward to what Christ will do when he returns and we eat like this for eternity with one another and with him. Do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So earlier.